your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews 3, verses 12, 13, and 14. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. We return this morning to a few verses which were actually part of the passage preached last week. And if you missed last week's sermon, I would absolutely encourage you, even go so far as to implore you, to listen to it. Go to sermonaudio.com and search for it there. Go to our Facebook page and find a link for it there. Because last week's sermon really did capture the overall message of this portion of Hebrews. The gospel, the hope we have only in faith in, by faith in Christ. And yet, were we not to consider this morning's sermon, if I was not to preach today's sermon, I would, ironically, be in violation of the very text we preach last week. You see, last week's sermon made this week's sermon necessary. Verse 13, as we are going to see in a moment, is a directive from God. It is an imperative. It is not a suggestion. It is not a good idea. It is not merely wise counsel. It is a command from God. And while it is a command to all of us, as we will see in a moment, it's a command to exhort. And who among us should lead in exhortation if not the preacher? Who within the body of Christ must demonstrate the, the, the nature of exhortation, confrontation, of, of challenge, if it is not the one who is called to the proclamation of the word? And so verse 13 makes today's uh, uh, sermon mandatory. This is not a sermon I would necessarily choose to preach on my own, but it is most assuredly one that I cannot omit. It is literally commanded by the text. And I will let you in on a little secret. That's something I missed on my own. You see, we preachers, we need preachers in our own lives. And so I give a... a, 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 a acknowledgement of gratitude to the Reverend Robert Rayburn who was preaching through Hebrews, and I was listening to it, and he exhorted me to exhort you with this sermon this morning. And so I am thankful for him, and I will admit that a portion of this sermon is built on the one that he preached on this passage. So follow along now as I read in Hebrews 3, verses 12, 13, and 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What do we see there in verse 13? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is the command that we hope to obey even in this sermon. Let us pray and ask God's guidance in doing so. Lord, be with me. Let my words be yours. Let the message that I deliver be the message that you have for us. And if I should say anything that is out of accord with your word, that is not in keeping with what you want us to hear, Strike it quickly from our minds so that we will go forward remembering only what you have to say to us, hearing your exhortation, your warning against sin. 
and that we would take the warning to heart and seek to live godly lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Becky and I had not been married very long. I think it was less than two years when, I'm going to say we, but it was really me, when we fell victim to a marketing scheme. The lovely voice on the telephone line said we would really just need to spend a Saturday morning enjoying ourselves. We could relax at the local hotel, enjoy the the breakfast buffet, the the brunch that they had spread out for us. We could spend the time uh, envisioning ourselves in exotic places on, on wonderful vacations. And for just relaxing and imagining ourselves enjoying this bliss, they would give us a free gift when it was all over. Now, most of you at this point are wise enough to know what that was really all about. It was a high-pressure sales pitch. It was an arm-twisting session that lasted four or five, six hours, I don't remember. It seemed like an eternity, in which they were cajoling us and and, and pressuring us to buy timeshare vacations that we couldn't afford anyway. So far from being a pleasing morning, imagining ourselves on faraway beaches and wonderful vacations, it was a morning of aggravation and frustration. The brunch wasn't all that good, but at least we were going to get the free gift. The free gift that had been promised, the free gift that really kind of sucked me in, was a hi-fi stereo. And on the way out the door, they handed us a personal cassette player. You remember the old Sony Walkman? That's what this was, except it was 100 times cheaper and more poorly made. It was hi-fi was not a reference to the quality of the audio. It was the brand name. It would be like taking a Missouri mule, naming it Arabian Thoroughbred, and selling it that way. I've been suckered. I've been taken. And the gift that was promised to me, I think we used it twice before we threw it away. It was a mockery. It was a painful reminder of how I had been promised all of this only to be made a fool who got taken and suckered. That really is a sort of illustration, a, the closest I could come up with to the warning of the text before us. Our passage warns us about the deceitfulness of sin. It warns us that sin can bring about a hardening, that it can foster an unbelieving heart. Now, we considered last week very closely the effort we are to make to be sure that we hold fast to Christ, that we are to work strenuously to keep our faith, making use of every outward means, the fellowship of the saints, the encouragement of the body, the preaching of the word, the grace of the sacraments, even the discipline and guidance of our elders. And we should subject ourselves to all of those things in an effort not so much to do good deeds and imagine ourselves righteous, but so that we would hope in Christ and cling to him. We saw that on the day when the Word of God exposes us for who we really are, the judgment day, that the only unforgivable sin will be the sin of unbelief. So far we went last week. But the passage we considered last week had not only that admonition to strenuously hold to the faith, but it also has this admonition, this warning, this guarding against the deceitfulness 
of sin. Sin, like that timeshare sales pitch, does not represent itself accurately. It promises more joy than it delivers, and it causes more pain than it will ever advertise. Sin is, in fact, infinitely more deceptive than that Saturday morning seminar. You see, for those who tried to sell us paradise and delivered only aggravation, they did so, I imagine, knowingly. They knew what they were doing. But the deceptiveness of sin is such that those who sell it to us, the way sin comes to us, it has deceived even those who are bringing it to us. Sin is, it, it, it beguiles even the one who stands in the midst of it so that he does not know he's a sinner. It was the so-called Age of Reason, the Enlightenment, that period during the founding of America, that intelligent, well-educated men could say things like this. The Christian God is a being of terrific character, cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. That was Thomas Jefferson. How about this one? The Bible, it's a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. That was Thomas Paine, author of the, ironically, <laughs> the pamphlet called Common Sense. So fully engulfed and duped by sin, these men imagined that mankind on its own, apart from divine revelation, might explore all things, know all things, learn all things, master all things, and that mankind could lift himself to the most elevated place in the universe. We have put different labels on it, we have dressed it up in different clothing, but that essential message hasn't vanished. More recently, in our own time, it was Richard Dawkins, the well-known Oxford University professor, who said that the, the theory of evolution, by which he meant the atheistic theory of evolution, allowed him to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Here he was, duped into a false view of the origins of man, but proud of it, excited about it finding in his, uh, uh, in, in, in his foolishness self-satisfaction. Such is the deceptive power of sin. And it's our, our pop culture propagates the same lie all the time. The British novelist uh, uh, Somerset uh, Monham once commented that the perfections of heaven will be boring. The perfections of heaven will be boring. Now think about how fantastic a lie that is. Here he is, a humanist, a believer, that we human beings, through our own efforts, can lift ourselves out of the muck. But he imagines that in a place where our technology works perfectly, in a place where our selfishness would not keep us from working together, in a place where our imaginations would not be polluted by sin, 
that somehow the, the exploration of God in that place would be boring. Have you considered that in heaven, we are never going to be bored? For we will always be finite creatures exploring an infinite God. The latest theories of cosmology right now propose that there might actually be out there an infinite number of universes. And I would think as Christians that we should have gone, duh, how do we not think of this? If the heavens declare the glory of God, and the glory of God is unbounded and infinite, then there, shouldn't there be an infinite number of heavens? Shouldn't there be an infinite number of universes? Shouldn't there be an unending creation that we will never tire of exploring? I don't know if the theory is true or not, but it sure would fit the character of God exposed in the Bible, wouldn't it? And somehow we imagine that when we get to heaven, we're going to be bored. That perfection is going to leave us ho-hum. I don't know all that hell involves, and it's certainly more than just this, but one of the realities of hell is going to be boredom. It's going to be a monotonous existence that is bound by the sin that we have so desired to live in that we cannot explore freely, that we cannot imagine new things. Heaven is going to be a pleasing eternity of exploring God. And by the way, all I've done is touched on the aspect of heaven from a scientist's point of view. Musicians are going to continue to expand our knowledge of music, as artists will do, as creators will do, as everyone will do in their own discipline, as we continue to build the creation unfettered by sin. And our pop culture, it... Our, our, our movies, our TV shows, they uh, 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 propagate the same idea that, that righteousness is boring. You think about it. What Hollywood uh, uh, script ever proposes that there would be joy or delight or pleasure in a godly life well lived? What Hollywood movie or TV show uh, extols marital faithfulness? That's boring. Uprightness of character, ho-hum. Purity of mind, yawn. To make a movie interesting, well, they've got to be bad. They've got to be gossiping about one another, backstabbing each other. There's got to be this constant tension and undercurrent of wickedness. That's what Hollywood has told us is interesting. And we've bought into it. It's never crossed our minds. Our imaginations are so polluted by sin that we don't even imagine how interesting and fascinating a story it might be to watch a young couple, essentially strangers, grow to become one over the course of a godly marriage. That would be an engaging story if anybody ever wanted to tell it. But that's not what our culture extols. Sin is so profoundly beguiling that it helps us do the right thing in one part of our life precisely so it can pull the wool over our eyes in some other part of our lives. You've heard me tell the story 
of the young woman I had in chem lab a few years ago. It was on the week leading into Thanksgiving and somehow she and I got into a conversation about turkey and found out she was a vegan and she didn't think I should be eating turkey. And we began to have a, it was a friendly discussion. We weren't, there was no animosity. And I asked her, I said, why can I not eat turkey? And she said, well, that's just wrong. A turkey has a right to live just as you have a right to live. And I said, so the turkey has the same rights I have. She said, yes. And I said, well, then don't I have the same rights as the fox, which eats the turkey? And she looked at me and said, well, that's a little different. Fox's teeth are pointy. They're designed for tearing meat. Your teeth are better suited to eating vegetables. Now, just stop. Don't continue to go down the argument about veganism and vegetarian. That's not the point. Set that aside in your brain. Don't worry about teeth and everything else. Here's what I want you to hear. This young woman who could look at the shape of teeth. And by the way, she used the word designed when she said it to me. That's not my word. She could look at the shape of teeth and determine from them the proper function in nature. She was a lesbian. How duped, how fooled by sin. That she could see in the shape of the teeth of a fox the proper function of those teeth, but in the shape of her own body could not imagine the proper function with regard to her sex life. That's how sin works. It makes you feel all wise over here. Makes you feel good about yourself over here. Look how smart you are. Meanwhile, you are a complete fool in this aspect of life over there. And don't imagine for a moment that that is only a risk they have. No, it's a risk we have. How many of us will adamantly, vigorously fight for the protection of the unborn as we should? They're created in the image of God. But we do not show the same concern for a young black man in a small town who may be railroaded by a corrupt court. You see, we're guilty of the same uh, 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 duping by sin that she was guilty of. We see ourselves as so wise over here and then sin pulls the wool of our eyes over our eyes over here. Sin is phenomenally deceitful. And was it not this way from the very beginning? Back on day one, I guess technically not day one. Day one was a good day of creation. Day eight. Six days of creation, God rests on day seven, day eight. Isn't this not what sin did? It came to Eve and it said, here, come here, honey, look at this. Look at this piece of fruit. If you eat of it, you will experience for yourself good and evil and be like God. Sin has been deceitful from the very beginning. And the deceit is almost always there if we have the wisdom to look for it, but we don't. That's how it works. For in sinning, she could not possibly have been more like God. He's the sinless one. And yet the Bible is very clear. Paul tells Timothy, Eve was deceived. She was fooled. 
She was duped. She was tricked by sin. The promise of the experience, the excitement, the titillation, the anticipation, it sucked Eve in. And it pulls us in as well. Even the illustration that we considered last week as part of our sermon text, we considered it from one perspective. It's worth considering again ever so briefly. This wire passage, we didn't read all of it, but this wire passage references Psalm 95, which itself references a time in the wilderness when the people of God grumbled against Moses. We saw last week, real quickly, what had happened. They, were, they had crossed the Red Sea. They had been set free from Egypt, and they had no water. And rather than asking for water, rather than uh, uh, beseeching God for water, rather than trusting him to provide water, they complained. And in this, they revealed their unbelief. You see what sin had done to them? Think about that. How many of us, and by the way, this is the beginning of sin in our own lives, how many of us have imagined to ourselves that those people back then in Bible times, they had it easier? You know, because all we have is the Bible. That's all we can't. We all we have to do is read the Bible. They got to actually see God at work. Man, if I could just see God at work, well, then I'd have no problem living my Christian life. They had seen God humble the gods of Egypt. They had seen God bring Pharaoh to his knees. They had seen God escort them out of Egypt. They had seen God carry them across the Red Sea on dry ground. They had seen the pillar of God be their rear guard when Pharaoh's army came bearing down on them. They had seen all these things with their own eyes. And in less than three weeks, they imagined that they were going to die in the desert because God couldn't possibly take care of them. And when we say, that we need more than the Bible. We need to see God. We, we need to be like those people in Bible days. We're guilty of an even worse sin. You see, sin has duped us into thinking that the Word of God is not enough, that it's not sufficient, that it's not living and active in our lives. And we have been sucked into the very sin those people committed. And why is sin so beguiling? Why is it so deceptive? Well, like that vacation timeshare sales pitch, sin misrepresents itself. It shows us only its charms, and it hides from us its venom. After all, how many of us would, if we were presented with the truth, would routinely fall into sin? I mean, imagine the scenario. Hey, buddy, listen up. If you sleep with that woman, it's going to be really fun for the short time you're in bed with her. But it's going to ruin the rest of your life. It's going to cause your wife never to trust you again. It's going to cause you always to, to be thinking unclean thoughts whenever you're with your wife. It's going to undermine everything else you might want to do. How many of us are going to go, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, sounds like a great deal. That's not how sin works. It never shows us the reality of what it is. Who among us sits there and thinks to themselves, you know, well, I can't actually afford this house, 
and I'm going to be under the, the, the burden of this debt for the next 30 years. I'll never be able to be as generous as I would like to be. I'm never going to be free from the onerous difficulty of paying, making these payments. We don't think of the proverb that says the borrower is slave to the lender. That never crosses our mind. No, the world says you deserve this. You should have this. You should live that good life. And we get sucked in by the greed, by the covetousness. That's how temptation works. Sin says you deserve it, but never adds it's going to cost you. You see, the world, the devil, and our flesh, they know how to beguile us with ease or pleasure or drink, or drugs, or sex, or money, or power, or the hope of revenge, or the hope of reputation, or maybe a thousand other things that I haven't imagined. And they know how to dangle those things right before our eyes. The world, the flesh, and the devil know how to dazzle us so that we cannot see God or heaven, or hell, or Christ, or the cross, or the wages of sin. And before we know it, we have fallen. And we now must live with the bitterness of our sin. Martin Luther said it is rightly called the deceitfulness of sin because it deceives under the appearance of good. Remember your mom telling you if it seems too good to be true because it is when Jesus warned the apostles to live in this world innocent as doves and as wise as serpents part of the wisdom we need to have is to to look every gift horse in the mouth to check under the fine print of every deal to realize that the fine print isn't going to be there for us to find that sin doesn't even put it in the small print. It doesn't put it there at all. And that we've got to know that there is danger lurking. Sin will deceive us according to our own vulnerabilities. This is the cleverness of our enemy. So to some of us, it's going to say, you know, this sin is not really sin at all. To others, it's going to say, you know, this sin, it's really pleasurable. To someone else, it might say, you need this sin. And to someone else, it might say, yeah, it's a sin, but it's a really small one. To another, it might say, hey, everybody is doing this. To others, it might remind you, well, didn't that great Christian preacher, didn't he do this sin? You're okay. And to others, it's going to say, you're okay. Because the blood of Christ has covered you. Go ahead and sin. You know, in his book, God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis uh, captured the deceitfulness of sin. He captured some of the difficulties of our Christian life when he wrote the following. Lewis said this, While it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is the best. I have an elderly acquaintance of about 80 who has lived a life of unbroken selfishness and self-admiration from the earliest years and is, I regret to say, one of the happiest men I know. 
From the moral point of view, it is very difficult, but I am not approaching this question from that angle. As you perhaps know, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And of course, Lewis went on to explain that what Christianity offers is not necessarily ease and comfort in this life, but the assurance of the next life. And in this quote, Luther, oh, Luther, Lewis captures a reality we see all around us. Many of us know unbelievers who are genuinely happy. They're content, they're comfortable. Their lives are more or less free from distress, free from difficulty. They have lived for themselves and seem to have been rewarded for doing so. And meanwhile, we know Christians who suffer. Not just suffer because they're Christians. They suffer because they're knuckleheads. Their lives are train wrecks that are self-inflicted. And we look at these things and we think, what is going on here? But Lewis was right. Christianity isn't the pursuit of blissfulness in this life. You see, and that's the deceitfulness of sin. It deceives us into thinking that that's what Christ ought to be about. It deceives us into thinking that that's what Christianity really should be. It should be about your comfort, about your well-being, about your happiness, about you and what you want. But that's not what we need. Have you ever noticed? You read the Gospels sometimes. Read carefully. Pay attention to how Jesus responds to people. He actually gets on my nerves occasionally because he doesn't respond to the question asked. He doesn't really answer what the people put forward. What does he do? He gets at the heart of the problem. He says, I could give you what you want, but I'd rather give you what you need. Let me address the real issue. And that's what Christ does in our lives. Let me address the real issue. You're worried about your comfort. You're worried about your happiness. You're worried about your contentedness. I am worried about your sin. And the deceitfulness of sin, it works both ways. Not only does it make us long for that which we shouldn't long for, but it also, in the midst of that, it makes us forget what we should have been doing. It buries deeply the reward of righteousness. Thomas Malcolm Muggeridge was an English journalist and satirist in the early 20th century. He was a one-time communist, actually went and lived in the Soviet Union for a while. He got tired of that, he, 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 he despaired of communism, and he returned to England, and he became a spy for England during World War II. And in the aftermath of World War II, he actually came to Christ. He would have been in his, I think, 50s at this point. And in the 80s, just before his death, he began to write his autobiography. It was not finished. He died before he was able to finish it. He entitled his autobiography, The Chronicles of Wasted Time. And in it, he wrote this. The saddest thing to me 
in looking back on my life, has been to recall not so much the wickedness I have been involved in, the cruel and selfish and egotistic things I have done, the hurt I have inflicted on those I love, all that's painful enough. But what hurts most is the preference I have so often shown for what is inferior, tenth rate, when the first rate was there for the having. Like a man who goes shopping and comes back with cardboard shoes when he might have had leather, with dried fruit when he might have had fresh, with processed cheese when he might have had cheddar, with paper flowers when the primroses were in bloom. Alas, so much of my life has been spent pursuing this fictional good and forgetful of the other, the real good, that is ever inspiring, ever renewed. You see, the deceitfulness of sin is not just, hey, that bad thing won't hurt that much. It's also, hey, that good thing isn't going to be all that rewarding. And which of us has not frittered away countless evenings watching shows whose plots and characters and titles we can't even remember? And we might have read something edifying or written a note to a downtrodden friend or spent time in prayer. The sin of lethargy tricked us, and thus it weakened us. And the warning of this text is that such sin might ultimately destroy us. You see, the warning of this text is even more dire, more frightening, for as miserable as a wasted life is, and as painful as it might be to suffer the consequences of infidelity or greed or gluttony, the real warning of verse 13 is more than that. It is a warning that you can never be sure, but that sin, so deceptive, so deceitful, might actually uh, uh, linger pleasantly for long enough. That it might deliver just enough on its lies that it leaves you permanently hardened, impervious to repentance, forever convinced that you do not actually need Christ. And you might not outwardly say that, but inwardly you've grown comfortable in sin, thinking it good, or at least not so bad. Imagine that you don't really need Christ for that. And so you will trample on the blood and body, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and commit the one unforgivable sin. And remember, the warning of Hebrews is to the church. It's not to unbelievers. It's to you and me. This is not about the hard hearts of those out there. It's about the hardening of our hearts. Sin is a deadly killer. That may not be the encouragement and hope and feel-good message that we wanted to hear, but it is the command of the text. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not toy with anything so deadly as sin. Do not be deceived by it. Make no provision for it. Put sin to death in your life. God, it is 
a, a serious and stern warning to hear this. This reminder that we can be at risk if we are casual about sin. We like to think that this couldn't possibly be us. Guard us from that arrogance. We like to imagine that we would never be so casual about sin. Protect us from such pride. Keep us constantly humble in the face of your holiness. Constantly aware of our sin, of our shortcomings, of our failures, of the ways that we are deceived. Let us be open to the voice of others. Those brothers and sisters you put in our lives who point out to us where we have been deceived. And let us recognize it. Humbly accept it turn again afresh to Christ in repentance and renewal. For we understand that the more we know of our own sin, the more we will know of his great grace. That even as our knowledge of our uh, the ways we have been deceived grows, we will also have a greater growing knowledge of the mercies he offers. So let us grow in an appreciation for Christ precisely because we have become more and more and more aware of the deceitfulness of sin. Guard us from ourselves. Guard us from this world. Guard us from the enemy. And hold us fast to the confession we have in our hope, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.